Thank you, Deacon Shelby. Deacon Alley, welcome home. And we have three new deacons. Some of you were here, I think, on Tuesday night for those ordinations. So make sure you say welcome and congratulations to Jess and to Derek and to John. John is serving in the kids' ministry this morning, but you'll see the other deacons when, when it comes time to come to the table. We miss you, Father Paul and First Lady Lissa. I hope you're enjoying the break. And this is my first sermon as bishop. And one of the things I love about being bishop is that I don't have to worry about how long this takes. <laughs> I'm kidding about that, mostly. Just now, after the hearing of the gospel, we all shouted, praise to you, Lord Christ. Let's, let's do it again, in fact. One more time. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Praise to you, Lord Christ. You will have heard, I'm sure, many times in your life that the liturgy is the work of the people. But as is often the case with things you've heard all of your life, that's not quite right, or it's easy to miss here. It's, it's not just that the liturgy is the work of the people, as if it's something we do instead of God. The liturgy is the work of God as the work of the people. When we gather and we pray these prayers and sing these songs and hear these texts and come and receive this bread and this wine, it is not our work in response to something God has done. It's not our work to provoke God to do something. It is God working in what we're doing, what we're giving and what we're receiving. The liturgy is the work of God happening as our work for our sake and for the sake of all those who we, whom we bring in our hearts and for the sake of those around us, near and far. So, the reason we all shout at the end, praise to you, Lord Christ, is that we're drawing attention for ourselves and for others to the fact that what we've just heard is not a story about Jesus, it is Jesus speaking to us. Praise to you, Lord Christ, for what you've just said. I know, I know how it seems, I, I do know, but the gospel is not a word about Jesus. It is the word of Jesus. If we, if we have ears to hear, if the Spirit is awakening our awareness, then Deacon, Deacon Shelby's reading is the Lord speaking to us. He is hiding his words in her words. Her words are pregnant with his presence. I know how it seems. But the Eucharist is not something we do to make ourselves better people or to make ourselves appear as better people. It's not something we do to prove our worth to God or to provoke God to act. We do not meet week after week after week. Some of you, week one, skip a few, week two, skip a few, 99, 100, but week after week, we do not meet to memorialize what God did once upon a time. We're not remembering, calling to mind what Jesus once did. We are being gathered, note the passive voice, we are being gathered by the Spirit to be present to what he is doing now, here, and to join him in that work. This is not our response to what God has done. This is God catching us up into what he is doing. And so we say, praise to you, Lord Christ. 
I know how it seems. I do. But the gospel we've just heard is not a history lesson. It's not a commemorative account. It's not an inspirational or motivational story. It's not chicken soup for the soul. It's not an illustration of how God might work in the future. It is a revelation of what God is doing. A revelation that happens to us, that transfigures us. It does not merely tell us what has happened or might happen. It tells us what is happening and it makes it happen. It makes it happen. This is what a revelation of Jesus does. It gets done what it's revealing needs to be done. You remember the story of Moses at the burning bush, turning aside and seeing the bush that's burning and not consumed, discovering that it's holy ground. When we read that text, we're not reading a story about a burning bush. We're not seeing a kind of literary fossil of an event that happened in the ancient world, in the Iron Age. We are coming to that same burning bush to that same living God, to that same call. And when we hear the story about the storm, Deacon Shelby just read to us, we're not coming up against a tapestry or a painting or a photograph. We're not coming up against a memory of the time in which Peter ran into Jesus on the water. We are running up to Jesus in the midst of the storm. That story we've just heard is a storm that's happening to us. And the same Jesus comes walking on the same waters to meet you and me. Praise to you, Lord Christ. That acclamation, that shout, is the way the Spirit has reminded us that Jesus is here. Jesus is here. The problem is we can hardly believe it. We can hardly believe it. We don't really see or hear him. I think at least part of the problem is we're too familiar with stories about him, too familiar with church to remember that the living Lord is here. We're too familiar with these stories as stories. And our familiarity, as Bishop Ed says, our familiarity blunts our capacity to be present to God. We're, we're presumptuous, we're neglectful because it's too familiar. We all think of ourselves as good listeners. We take a moment, do a self-assessment. We all think of ourselves as good listeners. And I hate to be a bearer of bad news, please don't kill the messenger, but we're all actually pretty bad at it. It's not that you should have laughed. The fact that you didn't laugh means that it's hitting a little too close to home, I think. We rarely, rarely give anyone our full attention. We rarely do. And the nearer the people are to us, the rarer it is for us to pay attention to them. So those who share your name and share your DNA, you're giving them a tithe of your attention most of the time. This is, this is what's called selective hearing. Anybody say, oh me, or amen to this? Selective hearing. We hear what we think we need to hear and buffer out everything else. I remember my grandfather, before he died, he, of course, as he'd aged, he lost a lot of hearing, but not nearly as much as he pretended to have lost. 
And he told me one day, my grandmother was shouting at him from across the room, and I mean, I'm a young kid, and he turned to me and he said, one of the advantages of getting old is that you can be selective in what you decide to hear. That was my introduction to selective hearing. But faith is active listening. Faith is active listening. It's empathetic listening. It's a fulsome awareness. Faith is listening with your face. I say this to my kids sometimes. Listen to me with your face. That's what faith is. It's turning our face to the face of God, eye to eye, and listening to what's being said. It's hearing with our whole heart. So what happens, what happens if we hear this gospel actively? What if we hear it in faith? And so, just realized I can't get the page to turn. There we go. The sermon was just about to be shorter than I intended it to be. (laughs) I want to come to the gospel now, and I want us to hear it that way. I want us to hear it as the living word of the living Jesus to, to us right here and right now. The first thing is Jesus makes the disciples get in the boat and go to the other side, and he dismisses the crowds. Now, you and I know this We've been obsessed for a long time now with getting as many people to Jesus as quickly as possible. We've been obsessed with making crowds. Jesus is mostly interested in breaking up the crowd or escaping it. The crowd, as Kierkegaard says, is untruth. Jesus cares about the people in the crowd, but he couldn't care less about the crowd. The crowd is a problem for the people. And he knows, Jesus knows, he cannot help the disciples or those who are going to be called to be disciples until the crowd is dismissed. So he sends the disciples out on a mission and the crowds he just sends away. Not for his own sake only, there, there is a way in which Jesus needs his, what my youngest son calls lonely time. He'll tell it, we'll walk into the room and he'll be watching anime, not, not cartoons, anime, He'll correct you if you make that mistake. And he'll say, no, 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 dad, I need my lonely time. Jesus needed his lonely time. But that's not why he sends the crowds away primarily. It's for their sake. And I want you to think of this for a moment. Imagine you are in the crowd and it's Jesus. I mean, it's not me. It's not even Father Paul. It's Jesus. And then Jesus says, okay, we're done. Go home. Get out of here. Scram. There were many people, many people who were disappointed, who had gathered in that crowd that day thinking, he's going to heal me today. And then they got sent home before they had their chance. There were many people who came looking for a word. He's going to tell me my future today. And they were the next person in line to talk with Jesus. And then the crowd is dispersed. There were many people who were disappointed. I'm sure there were a few people who were angry. I could have been at home watching the World Cup and I came to hear you, Jesus, and you sent us home before I got a chance. Or I could have watched the recording later and I took time out of my day to be here and then you dismissed us. Or I'm sure some of them were not not only angry but disillusioned. Still, he sends them away. And this this is, I, I think, the word we need to hear God does tell us no. God does tell us no. Now, all of God's no's are secretly yeses. 
Every no from God is a yes in disguise, but he does tell us no, not only to evil, I mean, of course God says no to evil, and not only to what he knows will be bad for us, but even to good things that are not what we need in this moment. And this is hard for us to hear. The no can come to us in all kinds of ways. I mean, you've, I'm sure, considered this and experienced this. The no can come in some kind of internal witness. The no can come through someone, a wise person in your life, a prophetic person in your life. The no can come and does come most often just through circumstances. Doors close, as we say. Now, not every closed door is a closed door. Not every open door is an open door. But God's no comes to us and orients our lives in ways that are often disappointing. But we have to hear that disappointment can be good for us. Now, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but one of the ways in which God defers our hopes is to save us from false hopes, from false hopes. And so there's, there's a kind of disappointment, a kind of sanctified letdown that we need if we're gonna grow up into the Lord. Jesus sends the crowds away, he sends the disciples on the mission, and he goes up the mountain to pray. I don't have a lot of time to talk about this this morning, but you should let that hit you, that Jesus prays, God prays to God. We can pray because God prays. When we come to the table in a moment, we will join in with Jesus' prayer. We will pray his prayer with him to the Father. And Jesus goes up in the mountain to pray, not to set an example, he doesn't let them see him going to pray so they will catch the hint and pray themselves. He prays because it is his prayer that makes our reality real. Jesus not only prayed, he is praying. He is praying for you and for me. And whatever is happening in your life, it is his prayer that is making every good possible. It is his prayer that is resisting and undoing every wrong. It is his prayer that is ordering our lives. Last week, Bishop Q was here, and he made a passing reference to the fact that Jesus prays, and he put it like this, not only that Jesus prays, but that Jesus praises, Jesus gives thanks. How many of you were here last week and heard this? It was a stunning line, a stunning line. See, some of you need to come every week, not every other week. A stunning line, even the creator gives thanks for what is made. And it hit me, God's gratitude for what he has made is how he makes those things. You exist because God knows who you are and is delighted in it. God is thankful that you are you. And it's that thankfulness for you that makes you you. God's praise to God for what you are and who you are and what you're going to be that's what makes you who you are. And so when Jesus goes up to the mountain to pray, to cry out for justice, to praise God for what is happening, to plea for mercy, that's what's making happen everything that we're about to see in the story. And you know what happens. The disciples are told to go to the other side, and so they start rowing. Now Jesus leaves them in the evening. It's getting dark. It's getting dark. Did you hear what the gospel says? They're commanded to go. They're commanded to go because they won't go on their own. Jesus forces them to leave. They have to be constrained. That's the King James word for it. 
They get out in the middle of the sea and then they are battered by the waves. Now these are fishermen, not all of them, but many of them are fishermen. They've spent their entire lives on this sea. They've seen storms again and again, but this storm is something else. The word that's used in the gospel is that the ship is tortured, tortured by the waves, tortured by the waves. They are, and they know it, in a storm that could take their life. This is a deadly storm. This is a squall. It's not simply some high winds or adverse winds. This is a storm that can kill them. And where is Jesus? Now, earlier in the gospel, they have gone through a storm. Jesus is asleep in the boat. You remember that story. Now Jesus is not with them. He's made them go. And I can just imagine the curse words they are using. Some of you can probably, maybe some of you are too holy to imagine them, but trust me, they're, they're upset, right? They're fishermen. They're, they're trying everything they know to survive this storm, but they're caught right in the middle. They're miles and miles out, and they're caught right in the middle of the sea. And they were told to go to the other side. So give me just a moment to talk about this. The other side and the middle of the sea. The other side and the middle of the sea. So the other side is where God's will is perfectly done. When we pray the Lord's Prayer in a few moments, we will pray, Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, meaning let it be done fully here. That's the other side. So when Jesus gives us a command to go to the other side, he means do the Father's will fully. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Love as you've been loved. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. If you're asked for your outer coat, give your inner coat as well. All of these commands of Jesus are about the other side. And when he commands us to do that and we try to obey, we end up in the middle of the sea. The sea in Israel scripture is representative of chaos and the abyss of death. So now we're out over the fathoms, we're out over the chaos, we're out over the abyss, trying to get to the place of obedience, and instead we find ourselves in the place of testing, in the middle of the sea where our will is being tested. Remember, where was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It was in the middle of the garden. So now they're in the middle of the sea, and they're there all night. When Jesus comes to them, he comes to them at dawn, in the fourth watch of the night. So when did he leave them? In the evening. When does he come? At dawn. So from dusk to dawn, they're in the middle of the sea, constrained by his command and tortured by the waves, trying to get to the other side. They know this is a storm. They're, again, many of them they know the sea well, they know shipping well, they are seafaring fishermen, but they do not realize that this storm is different from any other storm they've been in. This storm is the work of God. The Old Testament reading today is 1 Kings 19, the story of Elijah in the cave on Mount Horeb. And you remember the story, God passes by and there's an earthquake, but God is not in the earthquake. There is a firestorm, but God is not in the firestorm. There is wind, and God is not in the wind. God is in the thunderous silence. But in this story, God is in the wind. They just don't know it yet. They just don't know it yet. Suddenly, 
Jesus comes walking on the water to them. And what do they do? Do they find reassurance? It gets worse. Look at your neighbor and say, it always gets worse before it gets better. <laughs> when God is involved. <laughs> yeah, it's, this is one of the things I love about God. Like he's, he's not troubled by what we're experiencing. And he doesn't rush. He doesn't rush to deliver us from things that he knows we need to experience. Now, some of us, hopefully not all of us, but some of us have been raised in versions of Christianity. Well, they're kind of half Christian Christianities that make God into the deliverer who always rescues us from every trouble. They don't have room for the idea that some of the trouble we experience is holy trouble, good trouble. And they don't have room for thinking that sometimes God leaves us in trouble because snatching us out of it would be worse for us in the long run and worse for others involved in the trouble than for God to leave us in it. God is with us in all that we experience, but he doesn't rescue us from it. In fact, in fact, this may seem disturbing, but being a Christian doesn't make for an easier life in any way. Like many of us, I think, too many of us, we're sold the idea that if you're a Christian, you get to avoid the worst parts of life that other people, non-Christians, have to undergo. But nothing could be further from the truth. God is not going to rescue you from real life. He's going to draw you right into the heart of the suffering. And even if you yourself are not making a lot of stupid decisions that have a lot of serious consequences, you're going to be called to love those who are making a lot of stupid decisions that have serious consequences. And so you may not be suffering for anything you've done wrong, but you will be suffering with those who have been wronged. So uh, the Christian life is a Christian life that is only lived in the shadow of the cross. There is no other place to live it. There is no other place to live it. And so Jesus is not going to snatch them out of the storm. He gave it to them. You just don't know it yet. And when he comes walking on the water, it is a deeper test. And what they see in Jesus is their projection, their fearful projection of what will come in the midst of the storm. So hear me, whatever storm you're in right now, and all of us, I'm sure all of us are, you've either just come through one, you're about to go into one, or you're in the middle of one now. You are. And God is going to show up in the middle of it, just at the right time. And by the middle, I mean after you've gone through the entire night. By the middle, I mean the very end. And when he shows up, hear me, when he shows up, your fears are going to project onto him ghostliness. They see Jesus coming and they cry out, it is a ghost. Can you imagine the curse words that they let loose in that moment? We've been fighting this storm all night, all night, and now this happens, whatever this is. They are terrified. And Jesus speaks a word. It is I. I am. Don't be afraid. And Peter responds. You heard the story just now. Lord, if it is you, command me to come. Command me to come. Now we, we've told this story, especially to our kids, 
in ways that make it seem kitschy and cute. Peter walking on the water. But this, this is not a kitschy, cute moment. They're terrified. And then Jesus says, it is I. But they're not calmed. And Peter senses that they're not calmed. And so he says, all right, if it is you, call me, command me to come. And then he steps out of the boat. Now we won't take time to read them, but in the gospel of Matthew, there are only two other times so far in the story that this word come, this call is used. One, Jesus tells the Pharisees who are troubling him, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So when I call people, I'm calling them toward healing. So when Jesus says to Peter, come, he's not saying, yes, I love this faith. Look at you, you're, you're bold and audacious and you're ready to get out of the boat because you don't wanna be around all those people who are afraid. I've heard this sermon before, that if you're a person of faith, you gotta get out of the boat with all the doubters. I even heard a sermon that connected this account to Jonah's account and said, we should throw the doubters out of the boat and just claim the boat for ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> Praise to you, Lord Christ. But no, 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 no. Jesus is not saying, Peter, I'm glad you trust me at least, not like these other nitwits. He's calling Peter toward healing, and in calling Peter toward healing, he's healing all of them, as you'll see. A bit later in the gospel, but before our reading, Jesus says it again, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So when you sense the call of God on your life, remember this, it's not some kind of pr approval that proves you've been faithful. It is a call, it is a call toward a deeper healing for the sake of the people around you as well as for yourself. And Peter does it. Now John Calvin, of blessed memory, he saw this as Peter's impetuousness and he's, he's frustrated poor man. He was often frustrated. He was frustrated that Peter just didn't believe Jesus. Jesus said it was him. It is I, be not afraid. But Peter's like, if it is you, Lord, call me. Calvin says that Peter is rash. He's scrambling out of the boat. It's a ridiculous act. Why doubt? In fact, what Calvin says is he tries to fly to Jesus without the wings of faith. But that's, that's not fair. Because Peter is not simply doing this for himself. He's responding to the fear of people around him and he knows if he can just get to Jesus, then whatever's happening here will be all right. And that is a holy instinct. Whatever else is wrong in Peter's life, at the heart of his heart there is this confidence that if I can just get to Jesus, and don't lose that. Don't lose that childlike trust that if you can get to Jesus, it'll be okay. Now, it'll be okay in ways you cannot imagine. And getting to Jesus will be very different from what you expect. God, our God, does not work in straight lines. He will never take a simple route when something complicated and difficult is possible. It's one of the things I love about my own father. Although I only love it now, 
But whatever task there was to do growing up, whatever chore needed to be done, my dad had this genius for what's the most difficult way to get that done? That'll build character. God is like that. So dad, if you're hearing this, this is one of the ways in which you're very much like God. God does not work in straight lines. God does not work in straight lines. So when he calls you, just get ready. It's going to be difficult to get there. But the difficulty is the way in which the healing is coming. And you know the story. You could preach this. Peter steps out of the boat. And one of the things I love about the gospel is it doesn't tell us how many steps he took. I mean, he might have gotten one foot out of the boat. And the text actually says he started to walk on the water, which means he might have not had even one step. He might have walked 100 yards. We don't know. He steps out of the boat. He starts to walk on the water. And he senses, feels, sees the wind, the strong wind. And he's afraid. And he starts to sink. And he cries out, Lord, save me. Now, again, you could preach this. We've all heard it preached. What is Peter's problem? He takes his eye off of Jesus. That's not the problem, really. The problem is he cannot imagine that the wind is the spirit. It's not that he takes his eye off of Jesus. It's that he thinks that Jesus is under the conditions he's under. Hear me here. You don't get yourself out of the storm by some kind of hyper-focused piety, by praying harder, by giving 11% tithe instead of 10, although please do that if the Lord moves you. You don't get out of the storm by being more fervent in your prayer. You don't get out of the storm at all. You recognize that it's the spirits. It's either directly the spirit, the wind is the spirit, or it's when the spirit is using. It may not be what God is doing directly, but whatever is happening to you is happening inside of what God is doing for you. Either God is doing it directly, which is good, or God is working in it indirectly, which is good. Nothing you're experiencing is happening without the unfolding of God's healing for you. Providence is the work of healing and redemption. No matter what's happening to you, however horrible that thing is that God may be utterly against, it's happening within the goodness of God happening for you. And Peter forgets that for a moment. And so he cries, Lord, save me. Jesus takes his hand. And what happens next? And I'm almost done. Now, we almost automatically jump to Jesus calms the storm. But Jesus did not calm this storm. Peter is sinking. If you can put the image up, Tyler, I'd appreciate it. Peter is sinking. He's going down. Lord, save me. And Jesus does. But the storm continues storming. The winds don't die down, not yet. The waves don't lessen, not yet. And we don't know how Jesus gets Peter back in the boat. Does he pull Peter up and they walk together hand in hand? 
Does he scoop him up and carry him back to the boat? We have no idea. The gospel doesn't say. We don't know how far we are from the boat when Jesus saves him. Because none of that matters. Because this is not about the miracle of walking on water. This is about letting God lead you toward himself so he can take you back where you belong. Because this is what actually happens in the text. Peter cries out, Lord, save me. He's sinking, but as he's sinking, he's taking on the shape of the one who's saving him. Do you see that in the sketch? The scars of Jesus are showing up in his body. And that open-handed reach, that cry for mercy, Peter is becoming the apostle, the bishop he's called to be because he got out of the boat, not for his own sake, but for the sake of those who were afraid. And notice what happens. The storm keeps storming and Jesus gets him back into the boat. And then the winds die down. Then the stillness comes. Only once he's back in the boat. And Jesus doesn't command them to die down. He doesn't rebuke the wind as he does in other stories. The wind has served its purpose. And this is how we know that this storm was the spirit because it had to get Peter, it had to blow Peter out of the boat to Jesus and then back into the boat as Jesus' presence to these disciples. And once the spirit got Peter where he needed to be, there's rest. And what happens? And they worshiped and said, truly, you are the son of God. And I love that word truly because it means like, hey, we were BSing before, but we mean it now. Right? We, we, we didn't know what we were saying earlier when we said that you were the son of God. We thought that's what we were supposed to say. But we really, really, really mean it now. But ask yourself, ask yourself, how do they know? Why are they worshiping? Why are they worshiping? Not because the winds die down. They're not worshiping because the winds die down. They're worshiping because they're realizing whatever happens to me won't be done until I'm back where I belong. Whatever is happening to me However long it takes, it may take the first watch and the second watch and the third watch and the fourth watch of the night. But whatever has happened to me, whatever winds are against me, there is the wind of the Spirit. And it may be blowing me this way and that, but it won't stop blowing until I'm where I'm supposed to be. This is our God. Not a God who snatches us out of every storm, not a God who assures us that, hey, you really can walk on water. You can do the impossible. You can't walk on water. Your poop stinks too. You are human and the spirit in your life does not make you superhuman. It makes you cruciform. And what Peter needed more than anything, the reason Jesus is calling him out of the boat is so Peter can learn he can't walk on water. And he doesn't need to. You're not gonna save anybody's life by getting out of the boat and walking on water. 
You're not any good to your neighbors doing things that to them look impossible. You know how you serve your neighbors? By the spirit blowing you back into the boat they're in, right back into the heart of their fear, but no longer afraid. Because now you know that wind is the spirit's wind. That wind is the spirit's wind. I'm almost done. Give me two minutes. I want you to hear this. Psalm 77. I stole Bishop Ed's Bible. Don't tell him. Listen to this psalm. If we had another hour, I would point out all of the psalms that are behind this story. Psalm 46, Psalm 69, Psalm 107. There are all these various psalms that are being drawn on by Matthew. But I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this. Psalm 77. Your ways, O God, are holy. What God is so great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The skies resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the seas, your way through the mighty waters. Though your footprints were not seen. Now, I'd hate to spoil Hobby Lobby's ministry, but we don't recognize Jesus by the footprints. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Hear me. Gosh, I hope you can hear me. The way our God works, he doesn't leave footprints. One of the ways you know he's coming to you is that the world around you starts to come apart. Listen to what the psalm says. Your way is in the storm. How do I know you're here? Because everything is going to hell. And where you are, everything writhes and explodes and spins, either with joy or in torment. So if your life feels like it's coming apart, that means he's close. He's close, he's closer than you can imagine. All you have to do is listen. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen.